This episode of Book Review is supported by Chanel, the legendary fashion house founded by Gabrielle Chanel, a visionary woman who created on her own terms and continues to inspire women today. Discover her story at InsideChanel.com. In Gabrielle Chanel's quest for freedom, she had to master the rules in order to break them. Originality, boldness, persistence. These were her weapons. With soft jersey outfits, practical sportswear, supple suits and lightweight shoes, she gave women the freedom of movement, the freedom to forget the past and embrace the present. To learn more about Gabrielle Chanel, visit InsideChanel.com. This is a special live edition of the New York Times Book Review podcast. We are here in the Times Center talking about our 10 best books of the year. This podcast was recorded live in front of an audience on Friday, November 22nd. Thank you all for being here. I am going to quickly introduce the rest of the people on stage here. Tina Jordan is an editor at the Book Review. Greg Cole, senior editor of the Book Review. Emily Aiken, an editor at the Book Review. John Williams, who you know from the podcast, uh, What We're Reading segment, and a staff writer and editor of the Critics of the New York Times. Barry Gouin, a 30-year veteran of the New York Times Book Review as preview editor. Gal Beckerman, who is currently on book leave but came in because we could not keep him away, <laughs> and Elizabeth Egan, another editor at the Book Review. Um, not here on stage is our colleague Lauren Christensen, who had an emergency and couldn't be here, so we'll be speaking a little bit on her behalf, as well as several other coll colleagues of ours at the Book Review who prefer to remain firmly off stage. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about the 10 bests and the history and how we do things, and then the rest of it you can save for questions at the end. Um, the 10 best books dates to 2004 under my predecessor. Before that, we always had best books of the year. Sometimes it was nine or eight, sometimes 12, but everyone assumed that there were 10 best, and so we just decided finally to deliver on their expectations. <laughs> um, we now keep it at 10, and we also very strictly keep it to five fiction and five nonfiction. Um, this helps us, even as it frustrates us some years, where we think maybe nonfiction is a little bit stronger or the opposite, um, but we keep to those rules because it's clarifying. Um, what do we mean by best? This is a question that we get a lot. Um, best books are not necessarily all the books we love um, or books we think are important or that we agree with, but they're books that we believe stand on their own in terms of the language, the prose, the voice, the style, argument, the research, um, the overall literary quality of the book. These are books that we think will endure, that will be looked at and read and consulted and referred to well after the year in which they were named books that we think stand on their own and on their own merit. So again, it's not just books that we think are important or that we think have valuable arguments or that we agree with uh, politically or artistically, but books that when it comes down to what's actually on the page, that taken as a whole, we think it could be called a best book of the year. And in fact, in our conversations, we'll often have that, we'll use that phrase. This is definitely a notable, but it's not really a best book. Um, <laughs> So again, you'll, we had to get down to 10, so there are a lot of books missing. Another thing that it's important to say about the 10 best books is we are not 
curating a list. We're not looking at this as a whole. We're looking at it title by title. And that means that some years have things that don't exist on other years. Um, some years there's poetry, some years there is not. Um, in recent years, we've had graphic novels and memoirs on the list. This year, um, slight uh, reveal, there are none. One year, we had four books in translation, and again, there are none this year. Some years, we have no biography, no history, no historical fiction, no thrillers, no economics or finance, no science. There have been and are often animals on the list. In recent years, we have had birds, H is for hawk, the evolution of beauty, this year, there are no birds or cats <laughs> or dogs at all. So uh, with that slightly disappointing note about what we don't have, I'm going to talk a little bit about how we come up with this list. Um, it is a year-long process. It has gotten longer and longer every year. And we do start in January. Um, we start up with a official uh, desk-wide email that goes around attached to a Google document saying it's time. And you might say, but how can you start talking in January about books that haven't even come out? out yet, that's because we're often working months ahead of time. We know it's coming down the pike often through the end of the year in terms of big books, so we will start assembling and everybody contributing to that Google Doc, books that they think might be contenders, and also they have, at this point, by January, read well into March themselves, so we are nominating things at that time. And we open it up to the full desk, the full books desk at the New York Times, um, because we are not just the book review, but also edit news and features, and want to allow for everybody to contribute who works on our desk. And then in about a mid-year, we make things, uh, we kind of narrow it down, um, and it's just the editors of the book review. I should also say that the three uh, Times staff critics, Dwight Garner, Paul Sagel, and Jennifer Salai, do not contribute to that process at all because they're busy assembling their own 10 best lists, which are from among the books that they review personally, and those books will come out, those lists, uh, in a couple of weeks. So at mid-year, it goes down to book review editors, as well as Mr. Williams here, um, because he falls right in between the staff editors uh, and the book review editors, and yet has plenty to say. And we start working on that Google Doc, and it's a constantly changing document where things come on and come off and sometimes resurge. And then about mid-year, we also start to meet in person um, to discuss the books, and we go by them title by title. We are generally very friendly, but sometimes we argue, uh, but always respectfully. Um, and one of the great things I have to say about this team here is that they are collegial um, and yet confident enough in their own opinions to listen to someone say very firmly that a book is a great work of art and then be able to themselves say, I thought it was a piece of trash. Um, and nobody gets into fisticuffs. At the very end, we come down to what is a kind of shortlist and we have votes. It is a democracy with a slight dictatorial edge. Um, and we do several rounds of voting. And then this year we actually had a runoff. Um, so we are trying to, you know, be current with our political moment. And, and, uh, and so far no one has been impeached. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but we have finally come down to a list that we feel very excited about and eager to share with you. So without further ado, we are going to go down the 10 best books. We're going to start with fiction, and um, each of us is going to talk a little bit about them. And then after that, we'll talk about some books that you might call runners-up. We like to think of them as our personal favorites, um, books that didn't quite make the list, but we think are pretty exceptional nonetheless. So beginning with fiction, 
we are going to start with Disappearing Earth by Julia Phillips and to talk about this wonderful debut novel, Tina. So this is my favorite book of the year, I have to say. It's a, it's a debut novel set on the very remote Russian Kamchatka province, which is a cruel landscape, um, volcano studded. There are hardly any roads in and out. And in that sort of bleak place, in the first chapter, two little girls' sisters go missing. They're lured into a shiny black car by a stranger. But what comes after that isn't a thriller. What you get chapter by chapter, each chapter moves the novel forward a month, and it's told by a different woman in the community. And as the shock waves of the girl's abduction is rippling throughout, everybody's affected in a different way. And so you see how the different women in the community are responding and are affected by, sometimes in very tangential ways, um, this crisis. And you also get little clues, tidbits, as you read, you know, as to what may have happened to the girls. Some of you may have heard um, the author, Julia Phillips, come on the podcast um, and talk about the book. She spent two years as a Fulbright scholar in Kamchatka researching this novel. And, um, and I thought it was really interesting. She talked a lot about how Violence and violence, particularly against women, is sort of the, the underlying theme of the book. And she wanted to show all the different ways in which violence sort of plays into. Absolutely. Whether it's domestic violence or loved ones being killed, you know, in car accidents. Yes. <laughs> Anyone else want to chime in? Emily? You also emerge with this very strong picture of this part of the world, which, you know, might not have been in your consciousness before, and in the sense of where one city is in relation to another and the native populations uh, of the area versus the Russians who have, who have come in, it really gives you kind of a, a, a in addition to just the, the joy of reading the book, kind of a geopolitical sense of where this place is in the world. Well, I think lots of times we say, you know, of the setting, it's a character too, and yeah. it's sort of like we don't, in this case, it really is. Yeah. You know? I thought it was interesting, too, because it's not just the landscape, which, by the way, if anyone uh, Googles the travel section, um, almost gave our game away by doing this terrific story on Kamchatka recently that had incredible photographs. But also looking at Kamchatka, looking at the really interesting dynamics between the Russians, who are essentially immigrants to Kamchatka, and then the native um, Siberian Inuit tribes that live, um, have lived on Kamchatka um, forever. So, I just want to add something about the prose. This is a beautiful book. The, the writing has a kind of limpid quality that reminds me a little bit of Jimpo Lahiri. Um, it's just, it's a, there's a, but the violence that's sort of threatened and the menace that's lurking is conveyed with this sort of lovely, smooth prose. It's, it's a beautiful book. All right, we're going to go to number two. The Topeka School by Ben Lerner. Uh, so this is Ben Lerner's third novel. Um, on the surface, it is a coming-of-age novel about a high school debate star and his psychiatrist parents in Topeka, Kansas in the 1990s. Um, and the central conflicts are the mother's growing fame as a feminist author and the strains that that puts on the family. Uh, and then also the ambiguously bullying relationship between the protagonist, the, the debate star, and an alienated, um, marginalized, learning disabled boy um, 
that um, they're, they're kind of bringing into their circle. Um, at a deeper level, though, it is um, it, it tells this story, but it kind of amplifies. It becomes about the seeds of the social and political discord that we are seeing right now um, in this nation, the polarization that's going on. Um, and then at a deeper level, even still, it's a novel all about language um, and communication and what a miracle it is that we're even able to make ourselves understood to other people. Um, Lerner is a poet um, besides a novelist. Um, I assign the poetry books at the book review and I still think of him as a, as a poet before a novelist. He probably still thinks of himself as a poet before a novelist, um, but he's a very good novelist. Um, and um, last month I was talking to a student at the MFA program at the Michener Center um, for Writers in Austin, Texas, and he pointed out that often when poets become novelists, they're very good at the language and at the um, kind of visual details because this is what poets do in their work. But that um, Lerner has, is really talented at scene, which not a lot of poets are, that he knows the where and the when and the um, kind of how, how characters move um, physically um, through time in, in scene in a way that um, is very novelistic. Um, and you see that right from the beginning in this, there's an opening scene that takes place in a boat that is just beautifully choreographed. Um, so um, this book is um, a big sweeping social novel in a way that Ben Lerner's first two books were not. His first two books were very interior, very much poet's novels, and very much in what has become a trend in, in fiction in the 21st century called autofiction um, that, that's just kind of about one person's consciousness. This book dips into the parent's consciousness. It um, kind of shifts around. Um, it, it takes the tools of like the 19th century social novel and applies them to the project that he's been doing in, in all of his work at um, getting at this one character. And the, the protagonist is very recognizably the same protagonist from his first two books. And I, I just fell in love with this. We should also say that his real life mother is Harriet Lerner. Um, the author of The Dance of Anger and other books, and, <laughs> and so she is, in a way, perhaps the mother in this uh, uh, book. Uh, yes, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I, almost certainly. More, yeah, more than perhaps. <laughs> I, a lot of people who wrote um, at length about this book, I think, got caught up for good reason in its sociological themes and its political, the sort of deeper things it was saying about um, the way that Americans communicate about those things. And, and those things are very interesting. But I think what got lost in a lot of that was how enjoyable this is on the level of a social novel, like a Jonathan Franzen type book that is very accessible. I think it, it came across as, I think, more of an idea-driven book than it reads when you're, when you're going through it. There are great, great portraits of his parents and people that they know and this institute they work at. And um, I just, I found it a very pleasurable read. I say it continues from his earlier books, but you don't have to have read those at no, all. It's, no. I mean, it really stands on its own. It's quite different in yeah. a lot of ways. One of the things that happens that I always find interesting is how books come onto this list, onto our sort of early Google Doc in different ways. And this one sort of came on uh, with a very sudden burst of excitement <laughs> by Lauren Christensen, who's not here, but who worked on the review. And she's like, I'm putting it on um, very decisively. Um, whereas Disappearing Earth um, came out very early in the year and sort of circled back. It sort of arrived on the, on the list mid-year. 
All right, I'm gonna go to number three, unless anyone else has anything else to say. Well, I just wanted to say, you know, <laughs> the passages about debate are, just blew my mind. They're virtuosic descriptions of what, it, what the experience of a high school debater might be. And as I understand it, Ben Lerner was a champion high school debater. And he's very troubled. I mean, I, the, the book is sort of alluding to implicitly about the kind of political manipulations of language that are going on right now. So although it's set in the 90s, that's sort of the implicit backdrop. Um, and those passages about what a high school student is taught to do if he's skillful enough with language, just are, are very, very powerful. And it, I mean, one thing he does, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds about the book, but he balances that debate stuff where they have to talk very quickly, it's called the spread, <laughs> and yeah. kind of introduce everything they can into there, with passages about freestyle rapping where they do the same, it's kind of putting everything in, so, so you get kind of mass entertainment and politics and debate. Um, and then there's a grandfather who's had a stroke and has lost the ability to speak, and so there's all these different layers of language and communication kind of feeding off each other in there. Uh, it's, it's, it's marvelous. All right, the next book is Exhalation by Ted Chiang. Um, this is a rare entry uh, on our list for science fiction. I don't know. I don't think even Barry, who's been here 30 years, knows the last time. God, I, I can't remember fiction. a science fiction book. It's, no. it's it, rare, if ever. Um, also, very infrequently, do we have short story collections on our 10 best list, and that is also what this is. Um, Lucia Berlin um, and George Saunders were sort of their two most recent 10 best books that were collections of short stories. Um, Ted Chiang is a really interesting writer. He is, by day, a technology manual writer. Um, if that makes this book sound boring or dry, I, trust me, this must be like his version of like rap singing, you know, or rapping or like dancing in the middle of the night because it's very engaging. Um, and it certainly is about technology, but it's so much deeper than that. It is about really the ways in which technologies in, in inherently involves humans and what technologies, both existing and potential future technologies, mean for humanity and for the soul. And he, um, some people might be familiar with his work who haven't read his books, and this is only his second book. Um, his first book was called Stories of Your Life and Others, and the title story became the basis of the film Arrival with Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, um, which is a, a, a movie that he was very happy with, um, felt like it, it did reflect and amplify um, what he had done on the page. And I think anyone who's seen that movie, which is on, its, on the surface, a book about an aliens uh, who uh, come to Earth, so it sounds very much in the in the realm of science fiction. Knows that that's really it. Really, is a book about hum a movie about humans. It's about how we come up with language, how we communicate with one another. It's about memory, and in the same way, each of these stories is really about something that goes well beyond the sort of hardware or software of technology. And when he came on the podcast, he said that what he does, the way he starts each of his stories is to pose a kind of philosophical question and try to answer it through his fiction. So in the story, for example, The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate, which is the first story in this collection, he is exploring the idea of time travel, but the question he asks is, what would happen if, as you travel back in time or forward in time, it had no impact 
on the current moment. So most science fiction around time travel, you know, with the Back to the Future, there's that like one wrong move, and you know, suddenly you're married to your mother or whatever it might be. <laughs> um, uh, and in the Merchant and the Alchemist Gate, he sort of says, let's take that out of the equation and assume that nothing will ever, nothing will change. That what happens in the future is inevitable, and he wanted to explore this idea of fate. And when he thought about, well, how am I going to go about writing this? He thought, well, Islam. Is a, language, is, a, is a religion based around, very strongly around this idea of fate. And so he decided to set it in a kind of fifth century medieval um, Islamic uh, unnamed place. Um, and the style is in the, in the style of A Thousand and One Nights, sort of told as a fable. Um, and that is very different from the style of the other stories. He's really versatile. Um, one of the reasons he only has two collections is he's a very slow writer. And when I asked him, like, you know what, like, put aside the tech manual writing, like, why don't you write more quickly? And he said, there is no one, he also speaks quite slowly, there is no one on this earth who wishes I wrote more quickly than me. Um, and, uh, but he doesn't. But I think that what you sense from the stories on the page is that they are really deeply thought out. So he has another story called um, The Life Cycle of Software Objects, where he imagines a future world in which you can raise sort of pet avatars online. There's sort of a little bit of a cross between pets and children. You adopt them, you name them, you imbue them with all kinds of qualities. But the difference in this is that they are sentient beings. And so they have a kind of life of their own. And then he takes this premise and poses all kinds of interesting sort of twists to it. For example, what might happen if the software in which these live, the sort of the, the um, I'm not going to know the proper technical word, but is upgraded, um, or they move to another platform and they decide to phase this out. What happens then to these little sentient pets and their uh, slash children and their owners slash parents now that they only live on some place that is like essentially becoming obsolete? And are you responsible for them? And how do they feel about basically being phased out um, in terms of the, the where technology is going? Um, so each of the stories, and I, I feel like I could talk about all of them. Um, I'm going to hold myself back and let others uh, talk a little bit about it. I I feel like if I were going to describe these stories and want to make them sound appealing, I would say he's this incredible world builder and he fashions these amazing worlds and he lures you in, but he's not content for you just to ooh and ah and look around like he's engaging you in that world in every single one of those stories. Yeah. I'll say the happiest side effect of any of these books being on the list this year was this one, and that it was that Pamela and I got to talk so frequently about how much we like Arrival. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I've seen it four times. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think of these. I, I think of him as a puzzle maker. He's like Euro Rubik, you know, with and you've got the, each of these is like a he's working out the implications of something, and, and you're kind of following along, thinking, yeah, what if it were, what if it were like that? Um, there were times because time travel is, and the nature of time itself is so much at the center of, of a lot of these stories that it put me in mind of um, Alan, Alan Lightman's Einstein's Dreams, mm -hmm. the, the first book that mm -hmm. Alan Lightman wrote where it's all um, Einstein imagining different ways that time might work. Um, it, this book does a little bit of that, um, but he pulls in bigger philosophical concerns about you know, what it means about free will, what it means um, right about fate and destiny. Um, so um, and and it's they're very 
lucid, very um, almost a little bit chilly in, in the tone, um, but they do have this kind of fable quality. To See, I cried. I didn't find it. I cried multiple times. I didn't find it chilly, but, <laughs> but I also, you know, one of the things about speculative fiction is that I, I feel like sometimes someone will create a world and what happens in that world feels like that was in the in inevitable to that world. This book reminded me of Colson Whitehead's, uh, Whitehead's Underground Railroad in a way, in that he created this world that was so rich with possibility that every choice that the writer makes, you think, oh my God, that's so interesting, but I could also see this other thing happening in that world. And I felt like that very often um, with this book. So it really causes you to kind of contemplate philosophical questions. I, I should say chili is not any kind of, of bad thing for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas crying and warm is good for me. All right, let's go to the next one. It is Lost Children Archive by Valeria Luiselli. Okay, I'm gonna talk about this. Is Luiselli's book is an original, really quite demanding and to me, in my view, extraordinarily accomplished book. She's um, a Mexican writer, still very young. I don't think she's even 40. This is her fifth book. I believe it's her first to have been written in English. And as I understand it, she's long been active around issues um, around immigration and worked as a translator for migrants in this country and wanted to write a book about immigration. Um, and it wasn't working, and that this Lost Children Archive is the novel she ended up writing. So these issues are embedded thematically in what is actually a novel centered around a family on a road trip. A husband, a wife, the kids are in the back seat, the couple's marriage is in crisis, but they're on a road trip anyway to the southern border. They share an interest in immigration. The husband is trying to document historic migration patterns uh, involving Native Americans. So really, he's documenting a, a, an absence, places where Native Americans once were, once lived, um, and were pushed off their land. And she is trying to locate the children of a woman who immigrated to the United States from Mexico, and her children followed her and disappeared, presumably into US custody. So these themes um, are embedded in the, the sort of story of the road trip. Um, and the passages about the couple, I think told primarily from the wife's point of view, alternate with passages from a fictional book about migrant children in an unnamed country who are fleeing on a train across a, a border in brutal conditions. One of the children sort of plummets off the train to his death. Um, they're being shepherded along by an oppressive coyote or person who's going to cross the, get them across the border for all their money. These are poor children. Um, and it's a very elaborately constructed book. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful book, very ambitious. Um, with, again, this incredible intricate architecture at its heart. And those inserts that you're talking about, there's photos and documents. Yes, and there are also photos, right? There's a real kind of arch archival gesture yeah. going on. And I, I think it's just really an eloquent meditation on the wrenching circumstances that propel families in to, to migrate and um, pull them apart. Um, 
This was another book that I think was on people's radars very early because she's a really well-respected writer but had written kind of shorter, more, even more experimental books. And this is a bigger canvas and kind of a, a, a bigger swing and she really knocked it out of the park. Her previous book, and I'm, I'm, it's killing me, I can't remember the title, but it was very much about her work as a translator for migrant children. Yeah. And it, it feels like this book grew very organically out of that. She wasn't done telling the story and, and wanted to um, kind of give it a bigger stage. She also did a book that was just about teeth. She yeah, the story, story of my, my teeth. teeth. Yeah. That, that title I remember. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go to our fifth and final book on our fiction side, which is Night Boat to Tangier by Kevin Barry. Um, this was, I think, my favorite book of the year uh, on the fiction side. I read it in about a day and a half. It's, it's um, when I was on vacation, and it's quick, um, but very rich. Uh, it concerns two, two guys named Charlie and Maurice, two Irish uh, drug smugglers in their 50s, but in some kind of dog year calculation, they're more like in their 500s. They've had <laughs> very tough lives, um, by, mostly by choice. Uh, they've seen a lot of violence. They've inflicted a lot of violence. They find themselves sort of overnight at, as the title would, would have you presume, at a port town in northern Spain at a ferry terminal waiting for Maurice's estranged 23-year-old daughter to hopefully show up. He hasn't seen her in two or three years. She's in her early 20s, and she's fallen in with a sort of group of New Age-type characters who you know, float around the world. And um, so they're, they're hoping that she'll arrive, either coming or going from Tangier. They've gotten a tip that that's where she'll be. And obviously, in that setup, you can hear a lot of echoes of um, Waiting for Godot. Barry is an Irish writer who works very, very deeply in that tradition. He's very inventive. The first 40 or 50 pages of the book really play that out. It's almost like a two-handed play, um, and it does have echoes of Godot. I think one of our reviewers talked about the, the high-low balance they strike in the tradition of philosophical clowns like, um, like Beckett's. And, then, but, and, and that's great, and it's entertaining, but then the book really opens out into something much deeper and richer, and it starts to go back into their lives and play out in greater detail some of their past episodes together. One of them was briefly in love with the other's wife, and you know, actually they were in love. So they, they have a lot of history between them, and I think now they can kind of see the end of the road ahead of them. And you never, I wouldn't say you end up liking them, because they're pretty rough characters, but you sympathize with some of their thoughts about mortality um, and the end of the road and, and the fact that their best days are, are far behind them. Although in their case, their best days are really hard to distinguish from their worst days. Um, you know, at the height of their criminal enterprise, they were partaking in the product a lot, and, and their lives were really a huge mess. Now they're kind of limping around. One of them lost an eye. They're just, um, they're in terrible shape. Uh, but, but Barry, I think the, the really, the thing to land on is that Barry is a, this is his fifth book. I think he's written two novels and two collections of short stories before this. He's an incredibly inventive uh, and beautiful, lyrical writer um, with, with debt to all of the, the Irish tradition and he's really keeping it alive and uh, worth, worth reading for that alone. Didn't someone at some point say, like, this is the In Bruges, like, if you liked In Bruges? <laughs> I, I, think, I think I said, I came back and I was raving about this book and I said, it's like waiting for Godot meets In Bruges and then I saw it on, like, a publicist letter somewhere. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's maybe, you know, an obvious thing to say. <laughs> I, I wanted to say that, like John, this is my favorite novel of, of the year. Um, and I want to stress something that John mentioned at the end. I think it's a brilliant exercise in style. Uh, he's a remarkable writer. And when I say an exercise in style, I don't mean style in a kind of John Updike way, where you can sort of sit back and admire the construction of the sentences and the mastery of language. In this case, 
the style is almost a moral stance. And um, it made me think, and this is going to sound far-fetched, of uh, Edward St. Aubin's Patrick Melrose novels, because those novels, like this one, are dealing with very difficult, very ugly people, lives, and circumstances, the rape, a father raping his child and the like. The Melrose uh, novels are about British aristocracy, the high life, also drugs, of course. This is about Irish low life. But what they share, what the two novel, or what this novel and those novels share, is a kind of um, poise in the writing. It, it's gr grace under pressure. It's looking at the worst that humanity is capable of, and standing there and saying, I can take this. I can look at it, I can describe it, I can stay alive, and I can stay um, moral. And I can even find little pockets of beauty in it, even though I'm not endorsing the entire, there's a kind of capaciousness yeah, for about, me the, about the human condition. For me, the, the beauty is in the style and in the yeah. poise. Yeah. 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 All right, with that, we are going to move on to Nonfiction. The first book is Staying in Ireland for a moment. <laughs> Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keefe. Um, speaking of the worst that people are capable of, <laughs> um, this, this book begins with a crime. And the crime is a um, mother in Belfast, mother of 10 children. Um, she had 14, four of them died. Um, who is abducted before her family by um, masked gunmen. And you don't know what happens to her until the end of the book. But this is not a true crime book. No sooner has um, Keith described this elemental crime than he broadens the book to include Belfast, Northern Ireland, Britain. It's a book about the troubles. It's a book from the 70s to the 90s and that horrendous, ugly conflict. And yet it's not a history book either. I mean, um, Keith says that if you want the history of the troubles, there are many other books to go to. What this book is, is about people under extreme circumstances, and in some cases, choosing to be under extreme circumstances, and how their lives are warped and destroyed by those circumstances. It made me think of two other writers. The first one is John le Carre. And like le Carre, what Keith does is refuse to paint in black and white. Everything is gray on gray. Um, there's tremendous ambiguity to all of the characters he's describing. And the, the real Le Carre moment for me, and I'm not revealing anything when I tell you this, the real Le Carre moment for me is when we learn that one of the most vicious of the IRA terrorists is working for the British. And so everything becomes morally convoluted and complex, and you lose your, your sense of grounding in that. Um, what you have here are betrayal, hypocrisy, but the worst crimes are committed by the idealists, by, by the people who are, are 
trying to do good. And that's what brings me to the second author that it reminded me of, Dostoevsky. And it's Dostoevsky in, in that it combines belief and politics in, in a very ugly way. Um, these are people who are looking for redemption, and the harder they look, the harder they try, the farther away redemption becomes. Everyone in this book has dirty hands. There is no one who, who is clean. And, and so at the end, what you have from Keith is a book in which um, the veneer of civilization has been stripped away. And what you see is the ugliness that can result from people like you and me, from normal people who are then brought into these extreme circumstances. And not only do you get the ugliness that can result, but you're also reminded of how thin that veneer of civilization is. The um, people who listen to the podcast frequently know that we talk about um, obit reads, which are books that we're inspired to read because of an obituary, whether it's an obituary of the author or a book mentioned in the obituary. But there is a parallel on the other side called an obit right. Um, and this book was an obit right in that Patrick Redden Keefe read an obituary in the Times, believe of this woman, and then decided to uh, go and write this book um, on that basis. We actually sit next to the obituary desk at the Times. Um, make of it what you will in terms of you know, dead matter and dead wood and uh, things of the past. Books, um, books are alive and well. <laughs> death is on our mind. But I think we have our next book, A Rare, Bright, Cheerful Spot. Um, it is The Club by Leo Damrosch. Um, so Damrosch is a Harvard historian who's written biographies of Swift, of Blake, of Rousseau. Um, and here he starts that the kernel of this book is a story that we think we know well, which is the story of Dr. Samuel Johnson, who's the, you know, the famous 18th century writer um, and, and also dictionaryist. <laughs> um, and a dictionary maker, and James Boswell, who, who famously told his biography, and also this mismatch of characters, uh, Johnson being this sort of like depressive, um, heavy, uh, and, and Boswell a kind of a, a, an impish uh, sort. Um, so we, we, we think we know that story well, but what Damrush does is he widens the lens in this extraordinary way uh, by telling us the story of a club, kind of a dinner drinking club, uh, that started in the 1760s, mostly to cheer Samuel Johnson up, I think. Um, and, and it ended up being this extraordinary kind of incubator for uh, some of the greatest minds of that generation. Um, the people who were part of this club, I mean, it's an astounding list. Uh, David Garrick, who was the greatest actor of his generation. Joshua Reynolds was one of the co-founders of the club, the greatest painters of his generation. Adam Smith, Edmund Burke, um, Edward Gibbons, eventually. And these guys sat around and had conversation and shared ideas. Um, and I think what Damrush is trying to do, and he does this kind of in an extraordinary way by, you know, uh, it's almost like a group portrait of all of these people kind of who ended up sitting around this table, um, is he shows both how they're kind of a product of their world, you know, that they really emerge from this moment in London at, at this time, um, but also the intellectual exchange between them, the kind of push and pull. It's sort of a, a counterpoint to like the great man theory because you actually see them both in their time and in their uh, community. Um, 
One of the other interesting things that this book does, other people have noticed this too, I think Barry mentioned this, is um, its use of paintings and etchings within the book. So, you know, if you want to get a sense of what London was like in the 1760s or 1770s, he really draws on these images and you see them, they're in the book and they're, they're, they're interspersed throughout to help tell that story. Um, he also is really good on including women's lives. I mean, women were not a part of this club and the club continued for like, I think it still it still continues. exists, um, and uh, you know there was never Virginia Woolf was never part of it, <laughs> um, but. Uh, but he finds the women who are kind of outside the borders of this story, including Joshua Reynolds' uh, sister, um, and, uh, and, and, and illuminates something about Samuel Johnson that a lot of people, I think, who even really know his story didn't understand well, which is that some of his greatest intellectual friendships were with, were with women. Um, so I just, I thought it was a, a kind of exceptional book in terms of kind of painting a portrait of a, a group of people um, and how, and, 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 and their world, their era. I just want to add a small point, which yeah. you mentioned, um, but the visuals, you turn the pages and, and, and there are the, the etchings and the paintings and the portraits, and I can't think of a book, a serious book, where the visuals mattered so much. It's not the visuals that make this a best book of the year, and what Gal has said, I think, captures what does, but those visuals just add to the pleasure of the reading experience in a way that I can't think of any other book doing in recent years. All right, we'll go to our third book, which is The Yellow House by Sarah M. Broom. Just won the National Book Award for nonfiction as well. Yeah, I'm so happy to talk about this remarkable book. Um, it's a first book, Sarah Broom's first book. And you know, you've been hearing about it this week since she just won this award. Um, the book is many things. It's a family saga. It's a memoir as Bildungsroman. Um, it's an urban history of New Orleans and it's a history of racial discrimination. Um, but it's also the story of a house, the yellow house of the title, a shotgun yellow house with vinyl siding, not too large, not fancy, um, on a plot of land in East New Orleans, which was a neighborhood um, that was, it was developed in the middle of the 20th century, um, a very ill-conceived project surrounded by uh, flawed levees and waterways that never took off and became, as a result, sort of cut off from the city and more affordable to minority residents who were being discriminated against and um, couldn't afford to live elsewhere. And Sarah Broom's mother, a 19-year-old widow, bought this house um, on this plot for a few thousand dollars and moved in. Eventually, she had 12 children who lived in the house. Um, a second marriage um, resulted in many more children. Sarah was the youngest. Um, the house no longer exists. It was destroyed, finally destroyed after years of falling into increasing decrepitude. It was destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. That was the final blow. Um, and a good chunk of this amazing book consists of a kind of bravura reconstruction of Hurricane Katrina and what happened to her family who were dispersed um, by the storm and to the house itself, which finally collapsed. Um, but what's really, I think, remarkable about this book is the kind of forensic quality of her exploration of this family history. It's almost a kind of archaeological project. Sarah being the youngest, um, the house had a long, long history before she was born, which she reconstructs. She interviews her siblings. Her mother has 
almost steals the show. It's hard to say which is the main character, the house or the mother. The mother has this kind of vivid, distinctive voice. Her siblings do as well. Um, and she pours over fragments of decor that the family has salvaged or remembered. Um, Polaroids, I think she has just a few photographs of her father who died when she was six months old. Um, so there's this extraordinary way in which the book is an act of preservation and reconstruction. I, I came across a quote from the artist Louise Bourgeois recently where she said something like, you know, we pile up associations the way we sort of pile up bricks and that memory is its own form of architecture. And I, I thought that was a beautiful description of this remarkable book. It's also about Katrina in a way, but, in, but it's almost like this kind of psychological backstory to <laughs> Katrina because you're getting the life of one family who ended up suffering in the storm um, and losing, losing their house. You know? but, but, you, but you understand you know, so much about their existence in the city, their relationship to different parts of the city. You know, what does it mean to live... You know, so we think of New Orleans, we think of the French Quarter, you know, but for, the, for them, the French Quarter is like almost a foreign land, you know, so, um, so it's, it, it really gets at, at that dynamic as well. She also, there's a lot about East New Orleans yes. in the book and how cut off it is from yeah. the rest of the city yeah. um, by, by a main thoroughfare and it, it's just kind of a forgotten place. That's the main subject, but we should also let people know that it's a very expansive book. It, yeah. it also goes into Africa. She's in New York for a while. She's in D.C. And her experiences there are, um, among other things, hilarious. But um, it is focused primarily she, on New Orleans. It's, but it's true. She leaves. That. She grows up in New Orleans in this house. She's actually one of the few members of her family to leave home for college. And she goes off to Africa and has really interesting experiences. But she's always returning to New Orleans. And later in the book, she works in the mayor's office. And so it's really a search for home, a search for family, a search for where, I, where we belong um, as a group and against this, this backdrop of, of suffering and, and oppression, really, um, that this black family experienced. Tina talked about the phenomenon of a place being a character in a book. And in this book, I think you have both a place and, and a home, a, a, a city and a structure that become characters. Obviously, it's nonfiction, but they, they speak so loudly uh, that it's impossible not to hear. All right, I'm going to go to our fourth book. It is No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Snyder. I was reading this book this fall on my front porch when a neighbor stopped by and looked at the cover. When you work at the book review, people always want to know what you're reading. <laughs> and a, a friend looked at the cover of this book and said, how could you read that book? How could you read a whole book about domestic violence? And I didn't miss a beat. I said, how can I not read this book? And when I knew that I was going to talk about it today, Three statistics stuck in my mind from having read this book over a month ago. And I did double check that these are correct, but they stuck in my mind so clearly that I barely had to fact check. The first one is that 50 women are killed, are shot every, every month in this country by a partner, by someone they know and I'm assuming possibly somebody they trusted at, at one point. Domestic violence is the third leading cause of homelessness, 
And also in 80% of hostage situations in this country, domestic violence is involved. Um, Rachel Louise Snyder is a uh, creative writing instructor at American University, and she really goes behind the statistics to tell you the story of domestic violence as, as it is now. She tells you, um, she connects faces to, you know, she tells these stories with actual human beings behind them, uh, not just survivors of domestic violence, but the men who commit domestic violence, and also the survivors um, in cases where somebody has died. She, she talks extensively to family members and makes these stories come alive on the, on the page. Um, she asks the question not just why didn't she leave, but also why, does he, why did he do this? She meets with men at groups in prisons that are... Um, supposedly rehabilitating men, uh, abusers. And it, it was a book that once I finished it, I just could not stop thinking about. And it, I just knew it was important and a conversation we should all be having. It's a shame that it has to be this way, but when something is important and so disturbing, um, it, it just it, it helps for someone to be able to bring those things alive and, and not in a way that you know at all lessens its impact. But just I would... If you do think of this as a book that would be sort of like eating vegetables, I would just challenge anyone to open yeah. it up and read the first section, which is, I don't know, maybe a dozen pages or mm -hmm. something. And the way she introduces you to this character and lets you know who this person is and why he's involved in the situation he is, I, and if you can stop reading after that, then you're, you're tougher than <laughs> All right, I'm going to go to our last book on the nonfiction side and the last of our 10. And after this, we will do a kind of lightning round of other books that we really admired and enjoyed this year. But before that, number 10 is Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham. You know, when I was planning what I might say about this book, I was going to begin by saying, this is a remarkable achievement. And it is. But when I look or listen to the discussions of the nonfiction books, um, I certainly, and I think maybe many of my colleagues feel this has been an extraordinary year for nonfiction, and every one of the books we're recommending to you is a remarkable achievement. Let me talk about what's specific to the achievement of Midnight in Chernobyl. What Higginbotham has managed to do is to take a technical subject and not only explain very clearly to readers all of the technicalities involved in nuclear energy and reactors and nuclear power, but to encase th that very clear description in a thrilling narrative. He's interviewed everyone he can in Russia, the former Soviet Union, to learn day by day, moment by moment, what actually happened at Chernobyl. And so you get a narrative that's technically adept, but it's also novelistic in, in its portrayal of the people who were involved in this disaster. Um, and and what, what you learn as you read along is um, the, the Russians made mistake after mistake. Um, everything came down from the top. So if there were orders to uh, fulfill a certain task by a certain time, the people would do it, and they would do it by cutting corners. Um, or um, 
the censorship that was involved, the, the design flaws in the reactors were covered up. The accidents were covered up so that the Russians, the scientists, were not able to learn from their previous mistakes. Even the Three Mile Island disaster here was covered up in the Soviet Union because it might raise questions about nuclear power. You read the book and you want to scream at the pages, stop. Look at what's going to happen. And what's going to happen is not only the disaster that we all know, but there's a chapter called the China Syndrome. It's not as if the worry was that it would all sink down to the core of the earth, but there were other possible uh, utterly disastrous um, scenarios that might have taken place. One was that the radiation would seep into the water that... Uh, that um, provided water for millions of people throughout Ukraine and elsewhere, and what would happen then. Another scenario was that the other reactors would blow and would create an uninhabitable area across a, a huge swath of, of Eastern Europe. Uh, these things did not happen. What happened was bad enough. Um, the book ends with a meditation of really only a few pages, but it's very important, on nuclear power. And what Higginbotham says is something that I feel I had learned from the little reading I had done from experts on, on the subject, which is, if we want to have clean energy, nuclear power is going to have to be a part of that. If you rely on wind, solar, hydro, the numbers simply do not add up. And if you want to do away with coal and other fossil fuels, nuclear power is going to be part of that. And yet here we've had this disaster. We had Three Mile Island. We had Fukushima. So what does that mean for our future? And what does that mean for the decisions we, we make? Now, the, the good news that Higginbotham provides is that we have new technologies, new technologies developing all the time that um, are making nuclear power ever safer and, and, and making Chernobyl's ever more improbable. The bad news is that in closed societies, you still have the possibility of cover-ups, of censorship, of failing to learn from previous mistakes and disaster. China is going all in on nuclear energy. If other closed societies like Iran decide to go all in on nuclear energy, who knows? All right, that is our final 10 best list. Congratulations to all the winners. On that note. Um, but it is not the end of our podcast. Before we get to questions, uh, everyone here would be very unhappy if they didn't get to talk about their personal favorites that did not make the list. So you might interpret that as some source of perhaps behind the scenes disagreements. But I think that what you're really going to hear about here are people's real passions because Though we do reach consensus on these 10 best, um, it's very hard to narrow them down. And there are many deserving books that we all loved, and some of us loved especially. And now to talk about them, I'm going to start with John. 
Uh, it, it, as Barry said, I was going to lead by talking about what an extraordinary year for nonfiction it was, but there were just uh, you know dozens of, of really impressive books published this year. And I think that things like nuclear energy and domestic violence are incredibly relevant and important, but I'm not sure any book speaks to right now, like Andrew Marantz's book, Antisocial, which is not something you might think you'd want to read about, which is online extremists, uh, people who sow political discord on Twitter and Facebook and other places and, and websites that you, you know, uh, blissfully know nothing about. Um, but Marantz is a New Yorker writer. He's a really graceful writer. This grew out of profiles he wrote of these people for the magazine. And it kind of shows the background of his reporting and the profiles of these people. And really, it's a critique of the media ecosystem and how things have gotten to the point where people who are really mostly concerned with going viral and don't really have any political beliefs at their core are kind of turning things in a nihilistic direction. And, um, and it's, it reads like a page turner. Yeah, I mean, it's also about, you know, a, a lot about journalism itself and how do you go into mm -hmm. a situation where you are immersed it with um, and talking to and allowing these people who are white supremacists and white nationalists and racists to give voice to their views and sort of to be able to um, maintain the kind of journalistic distance while having their trust. Um, and Marantz is um, also Jewish, um, and he was with Nazis. Um, and so uh, it was a real feat of reporting. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, he, he does a great job of kind of using himself and their reaction to him to say something else about these people. You know, that he's, and he understands the balance of kind of not putting himself too much at the center of the story, but, but seeing that, there's a, that, that, that we can learn something about them in the way they're responding to him. Yeah. All right, Gal, I'm actually yes. going to go over to you next. Yes. You um, are often our uh, animal advocate. <laughs> Strangely, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> Though, as somebody pointed out in this book, animals get killed, so I don't know if, <laughs> yeah, if that... this isn't a cozy, cozy um, animal book. So this is yeah, this is a book I really, really loved, as my colleagues know. Uh, it's called *The Last Whalers* by Doug Bach Clark, and uh, he. This is a first book by a guy who went and spent years and years um, living in a small island. Uh, in, off in, as part of Indonesia with a tribe called the Limalarans, who are the, one of the last hunter-gatherer tribes in the world, and specifically they hunt whales, sperm whales, these enormous like 70-foot whales in small little wooden boats with harpoons. Um, and what he did was offer us this kind of completely immersive view of this world. In fact, he kind of disappears as a narrator. You, you really, you meet this set of characters that you follow over the course of four or five years. And at once, you're kind of seeing uh, this world that could not be as far away from our world. It could not be any more far from our world. You know, they, how they hunt the whales with, you know, these guys jump off the boats with harpoons, you know, and, and, um, and spear the whales that way. How the communities, like, literally butchers the whales together and separates the meat among them. Um, so you're seeing kind of that side of it, but then you're also seeing the real drama of the book is how this world is kind of changing in these little ways, how modernity is starting to kind of seep its way in, in, you know, suddenly some people have outboard motors on their, on their boats, and that kind of changes things. It messes with the way they've always done it. Um, and then, you know, there, there's cell phones coming into the picture. The, so, there, so you really are getting this kind of complex picture of a world uh, that's changing. Um. All right, we're going to go to Elizabeth Egan. Liz, you're we're going to talk about two books, um, both that you feel passionately about, and one also uh, that Lauren Christensen, had she been here, would have discussed. Okay, the first one is The Dutch House by Ann Patchett, and it is, so I would describe it as a modern day fairy tale uh, that takes place in the suburbs of Philadelphia, where two siblings, a brother and a sister, are cast out of 
the family home uh, after their, their mother disappears, their father, uh, I don't want to give too much away, their father dies, it happens early in the book, they are cast out by their evil stepmother, Andrea, and the next several decades unfold in this novel as they drive up in their car and park in front of the house and have these long conversations. And throughout the book, they come to realize that what they've missed by not growing up, by not living in that house anymore, uh, is really nothing compared to this little bubble that they have together. Not just in the car, you also see their lives unfold um, in other places. But what I loved about it is that I, it, it had been a long time since I read a book with such a powerful brother-sister relationship. It's really, and I mean this not in a, in a flowers in the attic kind of way, <laughs> it's a, a love story between the two of them in an, in an, in the, an appropriate sense. And it's, it's beautiful. The other book that I wanted to tell you about, actually Lauren Christensen wanted to tell you about also, is called Know My Name, and the author is Chanel Miller. You might know her as the Stanford rape victim. You might know her as Emily Doe. Um, you might know her as the author of a victim, a victim impact statement that has been read millions and millions of times. It was published on BuzzFeed. And you might know her as the woman who was on the cover of Time Magazine last week. And Know My Name is her memoir of surviving this brutal rape on the Stanford campus and her journey through the trial and what carried her through. And I, I think I said this on the podcast a few weeks ago, what really struck me as I read this book is the fact that this is somebody who would have written a book anyway. This is a, you're watching a writer just kind of unfurl her wings during the course of this book. So I'm really curious to see what Chanel Miller does next with her incredible talent. Emily, over to you. Oh, yes. So the book I want to mention today is What You Have Heard is True by Carolyn Forche. Forche is a poet and a translator. She's also an activist. And this book is really an account of her political awakening in the late 70s. She was 27, living in Southern California, working as a teacher and translator, and chain smoking a lot. <laughs> when a strange man knocks on her door, and it turns out he's driven 4,000 kilometers from El Salvador to see her. He has a tenuous connection to her. She's translated poetry by a relative of his. Um, but it's a really tenuous connection, and it's not at all clear what he wants. And he moves into her house, unrolls some butcher paper on her kitchen table, and proceeds to basically mansplain the history of El Salvador to her and smoke a lot of cigarettes. Um, and she sort of takes this in. He makes a lot of diagrams on the butcher paper. And it's not clear what he wants, but after three days, he says... Essentially, I want you to come down to El Salvador, a country that's under the increasingly oppressive rule of this right-wing military dictatorship. Um, it's a country on the brink of war, and I want you to come bear witness and see what's going on here. And improbably, she does. <laughs> so she flies down to El Salvador. And the book is really the story of her encounters in this country. This man, his name is Lanol Gomez, is a very mysterious figure. He seems to know everybody. 
colonels in the military, these right-wing brutal guys who are disappearing people and dumping them out of helicopters into the Pacific. But he also knows a lot of peasants. He seems to be a coffee farmer. It's not clear, is he working for the CIA? Is he a revolutionary? Is he a communist? Just who is he? And the book, I think the, the kind of power of the book is in the way it shows the kind of uncertainty, chaos, ambiguity, and kind of state of kind of fear and menace that describes you know, a country on the brink of change. History is always written in retrospect when everything is turned into a kind of narrative that has logic and sense. And this is a woman feeling her way through chaos. Her life is threatened. She stumbles over corpses and fields. Um, and it, it, not a lot of it makes a lot of sense. And of course, we know that El Salvador did have a brutal, bloody civil war um, shortly thereafter. Um, and um, her memoir is the story of what it was like to be in that country teetering on the precipice. Tina, over to you. Over to me. Um, I loved Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson, and I will just say that if I told you it's a novel about two children who spontaneously combust when they become emotional, you might not be interested in it, but um, you should stick with it. It's this charming, funny right on the border of whimsical, but it never becomes whimsical, novel about two old friends. And one steps in to help the other by becoming a nanny to the aforementioned fire children, of whom she's the stepmother. And that's the narrative drive of the book, her caring for these children. I will say it's really a novel about finding family, about making your own family, uh, and about keeping the people you love safe. Um, I don't know if anyone actually else on the desk read it. Um, oh, you did, Greg. I yeah, didn't realize I that. Yeah, I just read it, yeah. I, I loved it, too. Yeah. Yes. But no whimsy, which we are deeply opposed yes. to here in the book review. Um, Greg, you get to talk about two books, because as you mentioned earlier, you wear two hats here at the book review as our poetry editor. So I, I do want to mention a, a book of poetry. Actually, Carolyn Forche, in, in her memoir, the acknowledgments say that she wrote her memoir at the urging of a poet named Ilya Kaminsky. And his second book of poems uh, came out this year. It's called Deaf Republic. Ilya Kaminsky um, migrated from Ukraine um, when he was 16, when it was still part of the Soviet Union, um, came to America. And he is mostly deaf himself. And he's written this book that is in the form, it, it's a poetry collection, but it's in the form of a two-act play. And it tells a um, cohesive narrative about a um, set in a fictional village that feels like a Soviet village um, under the rule of um, authoritarian soldiers. And a deaf boy is shot by these soldiers at the beginning of, of the book. And kind of one by one, the villagers react with silence, with kind of silent resistance, turning their backs on the soldiers. Um, enacting deafness, although they are not deaf themselves. And so it becomes this kind of um, epidemic of, of psychic deafness in the town, um, orchestrated by a puppeteer. So there, there's something of a fable or a parable um, about this book. Um, it's, it's beautiful. It's also a love story between a, a couple of different puppeteers who, who meet and marry um, and carry on this boy's memory um, 
all in resistance against the soldiers. And it becomes a book about political resistance um, and a, a book very much about deafness and communication. Um, it's, so that's um, one book that really stuck with me this year. And then in fiction, um, similarly, a, a very small, um, beautifully constructed artistically book, um, almost a novella more than a novel, um, a, a book called The Body in Question by a writer named Jill Cement, uh, C-I-M-E-N-T, that tells the story of a photographer, a photojournalist in her 50s, who is impaneled on a murder jury, uh, the, the jury of a murder trial, um, that is a sensationalist trial. The um, defendant is a teenager accused of burning her baby brother to death. Um, and um, the jury is therefore sequestered because it's, it becomes a big tabloid sensation. And the um, photographer is married to a much older man who's now ailing. Um, and while the jury is um, sequestered, she begins an affair with one of her fellow jurors. And um, they think they're being sneaky about it, but it's, you know, the, the whole jury, um, it, it, we come to understand, is aware of what's going on with implications for the trial, with implications for her marriage. And um, it, it's a book that feels like everything extraneous has just been pared away. Um, and, and so um, what's left is this story where everything kind of resonates with everything else. And um, the, she's grappling with her husband's um, physical failing um, at, at one point. Um, well, um, it, it's, it's a book that raises lots of philosophical and moral questions about marriage, about life and death. Um, it's, it's a book that's really stayed with me. Um, all year. All right. Last but not least, Barry is our only editor who deals exclusively with nonfiction, although he has opinions about fiction as well. So he's going to talk about two really strong nonfiction uh, that... Every once in a while, they make a mistake and give me a novel to handle, and I think they're laughing at me behind my back. My back. <laughs> um, it's always a mistake. Um, the first book I want to talk about is uh, The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells. And to continue the green theme of uh, Midnight in Chernobyl, this is an alarmist book, and Wallace Wells says it's an alarmist book. And, and, and one might be inclined, whatever one's take on global warming, one might be inclined to discount the book for that reason, except Wallace Wells, in the course of his argument and presentation, is himself so moderate and so skeptical that you really are persuaded by the utter alarmism of his message. And the, I, I think there are two takeaways to that. And the first one is when we th think of global warming, there may be a tendency to think of it as something that's going to happen to us. If we don't take action now, we will be suffering from global warming. His point is we're already in that state. All of these extreme weather events are part of global warming. Global warming is upon us today. And that, I think, is one of the takeaways. And the second one is that the, the international goal that, that the, uh, that the world community has set for itself is to try to limit global warming to um, an increase of two degrees Celsius. I've forgotten the year that that's supposed to come about, but in any case, that's the goal. And, and what Wallace Wells shows is that 
at our present rate, we're going to go way beyond two degrees Celsius. And he, he lays out how bad two degrees Celsius is, even though that's the goal of the moment. And if you go beyond that, you're talking about migration in the millions and inhabitable, inhabitable lands becoming utter deserts and all sorts of, of terrible things that we get a taste of today from these extreme weather events. So, so those are the two takeaways from this utterly depressing but important book. <laughs> um, the second book I want to talk about is Rick Atkinson's The British Are Coming, which is, well, let me begin by saying, I, to my mind, there are two great military historians in the present day. One is Max Hastings, one is Rick, Rick Atkinson. And they approach military affairs very differently. What you get from Max Hastings is a top-to-bottom view. So if he's describing a battle, you get it from the top, and then he will descend into the trenches themselves, and then rise again. It's a vertical look at military history. What Atkinson did in his books on World War II, and now he's turned to an utterly different subject, which is the American Revolution, and you think, how could this man do this? But he pulls it off, because what he does is have an incredible feel for drama. Instead of that top to bottom, it's horizontal. He sets out scenes for you and, and, and adduces so much particular detail that the whole thing comes alive. Um, Something that's often puzzled about is why the Civil War is, is a source of such attention and so much writing, and the American Revolution, not so much. Yes, the Founding Fathers all get their 800-page biographies, but um, uh, the Revolution itself doesn't seem to stir the same interests that the Civil War. I think there's a kind of antiquiness to uh, the revolution. We don't have those gripping photos that Ken Burns is able to use uh, in the Civil War documentary. What Atkinson does is give you those gripping photos without the photographs. Oh. <laughs> All right, on that note, I am going to run down our list of the 10 best for our listeners. On Fiction, Disappearing Earth by Julia Phillips, The Topeka School by Ben Lerner, Exhalation by Ted Chiang, Lost Children Archive by Valeria Luiselli, The Boat, Night Boat to Tangier by Kevin Berry, Say Nothing by Patrick Redden Keish, Keith, The Club by Leo Damroche, Yellow House by Sarah Broom, No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Snyder, and Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham. This is the Book Review Podcast for the New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.